Hey, John. Hi, Dan. You get that little audio uh, thing worked out? Have you ever got a new? Um, you ever get that new adapter? You ever get that thing worked out? Well, I've got my headphones working today uh, because I'm recording at my my old normal space. Okay. Not not my new normal space. My old normal space. My new normal space is sitting at my kitchen table. Oh, or my dining room table in my new house. My old normal space is in the basement, the basement of my daughter's of old, right? Daughter's mother's partner house. I always liked that you were in the basement. There was something about that that was I really liked. Yeah, sitting here from my vantage point now, there are uh, visible to me one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. 21 Barbies <laughs> and two Kens. Uh-huh. A couple of the Barbies are, are teenage Barbies. Mm. And I should say before anyone blanches at 21 Barbies, because I blanch at it, um, these Barbies are... So when my daughter was little, we were, um, you know, like every thoughtful parent in my generation, uh, we were anti-Barbie. Barbie is, you know, um, conveys the wrong, communicates the wrong values somehow to our, to our generation X. Do you believe that? Or were you just going along with that movement? I, because there's, there's going along with something and then there's believing in it. Yes. Um, when they introduced those new, Barbies, the Bratz mm-hmm. dolls, Bratz mm-hmm. with Z's. Yeah, I thought they were so awful. Um, like everything about them was awful, and it made me pine for a time when our only problems were that Barbie had an unrealistic body shape and had um, impossible to stand upon feet. Right. Um. Do I believe in it? Do I go along with it? Right. Like you can support it and understand that it it's important without necessarily believing it or agreeing with it, if if you will. I think like some like some of these issues, identity issues, and and uh, you know modern modern problems. I feel like I don't have a dog in the race, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barbies weren't. I mean, Barbies were ubiquitous when I was a kid. Barbies were everywhere. But I also didn't, um, uh, you know, I'm not emotionally connected to them. And in trying to raise a daughter in the modern world where she, you know, loves and appreciates her body, but also lives in the world and and likes reading fashion magazines and watching television and, and communicating, you know, communicating with others and taking in all the tidal wave of information about her beauty and her body that she gets from other women and from the culture, you know, the, the culture driven by women. Barbies seemed like small beer mm. compared to how difficult it was going to be just to navigate other little girls in the school. Right. You know? Sure. Like the, 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 the information, the thing that was going to make her worried about her shape was not going to be the doll she played with. It was mm-hmm. going to be the other kids and the other kids informed by their parents and the kids that, you know, it's like it reverberates out to a thousand. So I was like, yeah, no Barbies. I also felt like I wanted her to play with trucks because I like playing with trucks. Uh-huh. Um, she was not interested in playing with trucks from yeah. the earliest age and was interested, very interested in dolls. And I had to work hard to find dolls that didn't look grotesque. Like I, I would go out on shopping trips, go to multiple stores, just trying to find a baby doll that looked like a baby Uh and not like a hideous demon (laughs) or some, you know, like painted, uh, a painted lady or some doll that was made to, you know, like suck a plastic teat or, I mean, they were all like dolls are gross now. And I, and you know, I'm, Hey, I'm no expert, but you can look at a wall of dolls and, and say like, 
it's not that their body shape is wrong. It's that those eyes are not proportionate to a human face. Like this doesn't right. look like a human being. They've made this doll according to some calculation where a baby is going to respond to big eyes. Sure. But that's not what a baby looks like, you know? Right. This is a freaky thing. And, and so I went all over and, you know, eventually was able to find baby dolls that, you know, when I would see one, I'd finally go to a store and there'd be one and I'd be like, oh my God, I would run over to it and be like, you look like a baby. Even the and, most baby looking dolls are still freakish. I mean, dolls are freakish. All yeah, dolls like, are freakish. You know, my my sister, my mom in the 1970s bought my sister a doll and the and it was, you know, an expense. Like my mom went to the nice toy store and bought her this doll. Uh, you know, and it's the size of a a real baby. She looks like she's a, a toddler, you know, she's two. You can dress her and put shoes on her and stuff. She's not an infant. And we still have the doll. Hmm. And my daughter plays with the doll. It's The doll's 50 years old now, or 40, 40 years old, 45 years old. And you know, you just think all these poor idiots who are upgrading to a new doll every year just because Apple hmm. comes out with one. Or, <laughs> you know, do you we really too, need it? We have too many dolls. But the Barbies came in all, not at once, but once the floodgates were open, um, what we have is... 21 Barbies, the earliest one probably from 1965, a lot of them from the mid-80s, um, definitely a few from the 70s. Mm -hmm. There was a collection of uh, Barbies of the world, international Barbies, Oh, Spanish Barbie and Ethiopian Barbie, a Chinese right, Barbie sure. that all had stands and were wearing their, their, uh, the outfit of their nation. All of these Barbies came in through cracks in the door. Um, <laughs> and I was just like, you know, wait a minute, hold on. Now we said, okay, to a Barbies, but wh where did this Barbie come from? How did that, where is this Barbie? And of course they're all different shapes and sizes. The contemporary Barbies are mindful of realistic looking women's bodies. The older Barbies are different. And some of the Barbies are, you know, are, were like, trend Barbies of their era. So they, they also kind of don't look very human. Mm. Um, or, you know, their, their facial proportions vary so much that when you put the wrong two next to each other, it's like, okay, yeah. One of these Barbies isn't from earth, right? <laughs> but they, they can't all change. You know, you can't take the shoes off of this one and put them on every other one. So a lot of them you can, just like in real life. Yeah, well, there you go. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for contextualizing that. It's interesting that Ken has flat feet. Ken's feet are are feet. When he's when Ken stands in his bare feet, he just has feet. Whereas Barbies have have little little pointy hooves. You know, they don't. Well, she has they, arches for the heels. For the heels, right? And that's the. Um, I think the I think the teenage Barbies, the skippers or whatever, they have, if not flat feet, at least like flatter feet. Uh -huh. But we taught we've we we've started. Uh, my daughter has started to be interested in in talking about heels and how difficult they are to wear and what they're about. And mm. we've been having we've been having uh, high heels conversations lately. So part part of that is is prompted by the by the Barbies, I think, and interacting with their shoes. But also, you know, she's her mother wears heels and we asked my mom the other day at dinner, like, what were your heels? And she was like, Well, we all wore heels all the time. Four inch heels every day. Yeah. And listening to her kind of talk about her life in heels and the fact that the day she retired from corporate life, she stepped out of her heels and never put on another pair of heels in her life. I think that is very typical for that generation. My mom tells a very similar kind of a story. Yeah. She bought some, I don't know what, 
sparkly tennis shoes that she wears when she goes to the symphony. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you couldn't get me in a pair of heels. You couldn't, you couldn't pay me any amount of money. And I was like, yeah, right on, you know, liberation. Anyway, so that's the space that I'm in, Dan, I'm in this, um, I'm in a Barbie space. Yeah. We, we did have a, you know, a, Lucy Hodgman, John's daughter had American girl dolls. Yeah, which so, are, did, so did so did mine, or so does mine. Yeah, and, and Barbies too. Very expensive American Girl dolls, and it's a whole. Yeah, as you they know, have, they have very big stores that are just about the American Girl doll. You can take the doll there, and you can book an appointment. Well, you have to book an appointment. You can't just walk in. Uh, in order to get the doll's hair done and clothing for the doll, and there's accessories. There are dogs and cats for the dolls to have. Uh, it's an industry. It's a very yeah. much an industry. And to be, you know, before our listeners laugh about it, um, there, there are some very cool aspects to this doll because you can just buy one off the shelf, but you can also customize them. And then the daughter can uh, dress like the doll. Um, they can, you know, get the same clothing, in other words, for themselves that the doll has. Um and uh, for a lot of kids, especially kids that my, that I've, I've seen this firsthand, for a lot of girls that feel maybe miss or less represented um, by, you know, the mainstream dolls, you can actually get a, um, I almost just said real doll. Um, you can get <laughs> an American girl doll that looks, that looks like you and has the same hairstyle and hair color and eye color and uh, skin tone and everything else that you have, you can get the doll that is exactly like you in that way. And um, there are lots of girls that, that love that. You can get a doll that looks exactly like you if you want. Yeah, you can, and you can get matching clothes. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful racket mm. um, because on, on the one hand, yeah, you can really, you can really like uh, zero in on exactly your, Look and feel, and you. But can at the end of the day, John, it's girl. it's just a very expensive doll. Very expensive doll, yeah. But Lucy gave us one of her old American Girl dolls when when my daughter was young. We we inherited an American Girl doll, and yeah, that doll has had it has had a long life, long life with Lucy, and then she still is in in uh, regular play here. Here at the um, in in Normandy Park, Washington. But I've I'm feeling, and you must be also. I'm feeling the transition happening. Um, the the ten and a half year old beginning to morph into an older child, mm. into a into a middle child, the the middle years. We we went back to school uh, in person on September 5th or whatever. Mm-hmm. And by September 8th, a kid in the lower elementary had COVID. And by September 10th, a kid in her class had been in contact with someone who had COVID. And by the next day, that kid had COVID. And so now we're not in school anymore. And oh, we're so back. how many, how many kids did it take for them to do that, for them to, make that choice i guess it was a chain of three three in her class or in the school as no, a whole in the in the school as a whole see we've had more than that in my school have you yeah wait not not in not in any of the classes that either of my kids are in but we definitely had more cases than that it seems like every few days there's a case and and they had said something like there's a percentage that they're looking for and if they hit that percentage, then they might have to like reevaluate in-person classes. Um, but so far, they haven't haven't made that decision or choice to not have the classes happening for real in in the school. Yeah, they they shut it all down at our school. Um, so she's upstairs on her computer trying to figure out like math or something. Well, she she said, "Oh, I just said computer, and Alexa had something to uh, say." Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I know you don't know that. <laughs> Little puck. Uh-huh. wasn't talking to you. Um, she's, she's watched a video on some style, some learning style. Right. And she's being asked to, um, you know, condense it into a short essay, you know, like what you watched a video, 10 minute long video. Now write a short essay, what the video was about. And so she and I were talking about how to do that. And, and that's definitely between the two of us has always been a, a place where there was a somewhat of a, a, like a communication gulf because I love to, um, I love to tell you the story of a thing, right? If mm-hmm. I watched a 10 minute video, I would, I could spend 20 minutes telling you about it. Um, <clears throat> and She's always been someone wh- where I would say, you know, I'd pick her up at school and say, how was school? And she would go fine. And I would say, well, what happened? And she would go nothing. Right. And I would say, I know, but, you know, within within the family of nothing happening at school, like what were some of the things? Did you do this? Did you do that? And she would kind of give one or two word answers. And so from a young age, I was always kind of kind of working with her saying like, this will be something that will happen your whole life. Right. You know, you'll be asked to have a report on an event. You'll go to a, you'll go to a fancy dinner. You'll go to see a movie. You'll take a class. And when you come out, someone's going to want you to summarize what happened. And so it's a skill that you have to develop if you don't have it innately to, to be able to, recall and summarize things that happen to you. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, she's receptive to the idea, but she, you know, it's, she's not a storyteller in that way. Right, right, right. You know, she doesn't want to storyteller in in other ways, but not in the, um, you're not going to believe what happened to me today. And on the one hand, that's great because she's not somebody that's like, let me tell you about my dreams. Mm-hmm. I really have to ask her about her dreams. But on the other hand, you know, it's a, a, all through school, that's a big part of what they ask you to do. It's like, read this book and then summarize it. What, what happened at the thing, you know? So anyway, we're back to that and it's on computer and it's so basically I'm the teacher now. And her mom is the teacher now, instead of there being a teacher right. that she can go to and say, I don't understand this. So it definitely changes. She doesn't like to do online school. You know, she wants to be yeah. in the school with the kids. Yeah, mine are the same way. They they did not like that. And it's not like that's not a thing that they uh, they enjoy doing or do well. Yeah. They do not like it. They do not want that. And it's not just that I personally hate it. Um, but it's that it's, they also hate it. They hate it more than me. Both of them. <laughs> now, you know, I, I will take that back. My, I think my son probably is okay with it because it means he can sleep. He will, he would literally like be in bed until two and a half minutes before the class needed to start. Like he's, he's that way. He just does not. He's a man of leisure. Me too. I'm exactly the same. Yeah. And so he's just not excited ever about being in class or going to school, being there physically, but he does prefer in person. And my daughter definitely prefers in person. Like not even, they both just lose their shit if they're, you know, if, if they're not, it's, and no, and I don't want to be around that. Yeah. Um, how is the transition to teenage Jensen? Yeah. With, for you? Uh, with my boy, he's, he is very much a teenage boy, like in, in every, in every, and any way that a teenage boy could be a teenage boy. He is, mm-hmm. he is that, <laughs> um, 
you know, all of the, um, all of the stereotypes he has, all of he does all of those things. Um, you know, he, he stays up way too late and will stay up on his own too late, you know, like secretly he, he hasn't like tried as far as I know, he hasn't been like trying to sneak watching porn or anything, but all of the other teenage stuff of just sort of being like, eh, you know, it's like, he's kind of, it's not like he thinks he's too cool for, for things, but it's just like the, the crazy enthusiasm that little kids have for everything is now kind of, it's not that cool, you know? Um, and he watches lots of very, very, very short YouTube videos that are all bass boosted and over amplified. And like, it'll show like a rat running down an alley to a bass boosted hip hop rap song. That's unintelligible. And the video is about seven seconds long. Dad, dad, watch this video. It's only seven seconds. And I've explained to him, I've said, I, any video that's only seven seconds is not a video that I want to watch. There's nothing I will get out of a seven second video. And he knows right. this, but he doesn't stop. He won't stop. He'll say, well, dad, just, okay, but just watch. It's only seven seconds. Like the fact that it's only seven seconds is somehow like at, at my age, it takes me seven seconds to shift focus to something else now. Sure. Just get your eyes in focus. Just to get the eyes in focus, just to, I was reading this thing. Now I'm going to look over at you. I'm going to look over at your iPad. Oh, you want me to watch something on your iPad? Okay. That's seven seconds already. So they're like saying that it's a seven second video to him. It's like, well, it's only seven seconds of your life, but I'm not even going to care about anything. It's, sure, for it's you, only it's seven seconds, 14, 15 seconds. That's, that's right. Maybe more. Maybe it's going to, then it takes you another seven seconds to get back to what you were doing. And then he, you know, he gets home, he gets home. And the first thing he does, he just, he takes his socks off, leaves them, leaves them there, mm-hmm. you know, right away. Just leaves mm-hmm. his socks. He doesn't even make an attempt. He's not even trying to put them away. He's not even no. trying to put them away until I remind him of it. And then I can do the like mommy dearest thing where like the socks just stay there or like maybe I'll oh. put them on his chair, something a little passive aggressive. It's like it's been four days since you. Uh, so I, you know, it's very teenage, very teenage boy stuff happening, but he has become someone who I just absolutely love to hang out with. And well, that's, that's, cool. that's kind of a new I mean, like I felt that way for a while, but in over the course of the almost 14 years of his life, um, you know, now feeling like we can, you know, we watch the James Bond movies together. We can, we've watched all tons and tons of movies and TV shows together. Um, you know, some of them are action adventure, like Bond or Mission Impossible or whatever, but he's present enough, present enough to understand that like a Roger Moore film is filled with out of touch, out of place values and misogyny and campiness. And like, he gets all of that stuff now. So when I'm watching it, I'm not watching the movie with someone who's interpreting it or absorbing it at face value. This is a a person who's appreciating it or disliking it or loving it on multiple levels now and we can talk yeah we can talk about those things like we can have a conversation about those things and that's just super super cool to me um and something that you know even just a year or so ago uh we really just you we just couldn't we just couldn't do it yet you know what i mean like he wasn't he was not there intellectually um, really on the level I wanted him to be. Like I've watched a big Lebowski with him. I've watched and he he appreciates it and he notices little subtle details in it and he he can pick up on some of the themes of the movie and we can talk about those things. And like being able to do that with him is just so much fun and so rewarding for me because for so long, like I knew that I knew that those capabilities were just there, but they were just in a latent a latent state, you know, and, and we couldn't access them yet, but they would develop and come out soon. And now here they are. And so it's, it's just very cool to, you know, to have that, I think. Yeah. That, uh, 
It's that not is, there with my daughter just yet. You know, she's much younger, uh, but hopefully soon. Yeah, that that's on the cusp for me too. I I she and I have started to have conversations about things where she, you know, because they <clears throat> kids are exposed to a lot of contemporary thinking. Yeah. With, without being given a ton of depth to the context. And I'm all about deep background. So she comes with questions about, you know, there, there's a rule at school that you're not supposed to do this. And she knows there are reasons, you know, she understands it at the surface level. Why, why the rule? But she wants to know why, first of all, why is it true, the thing uh -huh. that, that where there needs to be a rule, why is that true in the first place? But then she started to, you know, to kind of come at it like, well, if that's true, why is that the rule that they came up with? Like, there are a lot of things you could do about this, about the problem they're trying to solve. Why is this the, of all the rules they could, they could de devise, why is it this one? And I love that. And she enjoys that kind of conversation with me because I get to do the thing where I'm like, well, sweetie, in 1820, <laughs> there was a man. And he owned one boat, but then he got a second boat, you know, and she, she sticks with me through that stuff. Yeah. She'll, she'll hang in the conversation a lot longer than she would if I started to talk about a lot of other things, you know, like the, there, there are a million times in a day where I go in 1820 and she turns around and is gone. But that kind of question that she comes to me about where she's heard She's heard it enough times that she recognizes like, oh, this is a thing that adults are really exercised about and they've come up with a rule about it that we are, that, that we're all asked to follow or required to follow. But there's something about it that doesn't square. Um, usually that, that, that kind of question, like of all the ways you could resolve this issue. But the other day she came and, and sat down in a chair and said, tell me about 9-11. Mm. Wow. And I said, what do you know about 9-11? And she said, not much. And I thought about it. I thought about that for a minute. Like, she's heard about 9-11 a lot mm -hmm. in the ether kind of in the same way that I had heard about December 7th, mm. 1941. Right. Which, but that seemed, and I, I wonder if it, to her, if it seems the same way that that seemed to us growing up, like it seemed important, it seemed relevant, but it also seemed like it was not part of our personal history. It was part of our shared national history, but it wasn't like, it was hard. I don't know if this is true for you, but for me, it was hard to sort of connect with you know, World War Two stuff or World War One stuff, for example. Or even, yeah, I mean, kind of more with Vietnam War, but I don't know if you felt that way too. Well, my dad fought in World War Two in the Pacific mm -hmm. and was in, you know, was in and out of Pearl Harbor throughout the war. And we went to Pearl Harbor when I was younger than my daughter is now mm -hmm. and went to the USS Arizona and, and all of my dad's buddies all fought in world war two. So that war was very present for me. And also because from the time I was born, I mean, all through the 1960s and seventies, sixties, mostly, I mean, world war two movies were a dominant form of, of dude movie. Oh Yeah. And so my dad loved watching those old World still, War II movies. Still are, I think. They still are. 
they're, you know, they were on TV. That's the late movie, right? The yeah. late movie is always somebody's got a commando mission where they're going to go blow up a tower. Right. And so I watched those movies with my dad. And so World War II, it just had, I think about it a lot, just the way that we um, decided we were going to remember that war and what, how uncomplicated it was. You could sit down and watch a movie of some GIs and they were going to do some thing. And even if they were hard bitten and nasty, even if they were Telly Savalas, <laughs> they still um, were, were, were Americans. And you knew that, the, that as bad as Telly Savalas was, the Nazis or the Japanese were worse. 9-11 is this weird ghost that like haunts everything and the wars that it precipitated mm -hmm. were not clear were not were not very present and definitely i think if we lived in um oklahoma city or if we lived in uh lexington kentucky or so somewhere other than the ivory tower of Seattle, Washington, hmm. the wars, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan might be more viscerally present in our lives just because there would be veterans around us all the time. And I know there are veterans around us in Seattle all the time, but culturally, you know, my twenties and thirties and forties and the, the time my thirties and forties, during which time these wars were, were raging, I was in, in a rock band and and in a, in a completely different context. The number of people I met in other bands who were who had served in the armed forces were vanishingly small. I mean, they're there. Mike Squires was a Marine. Um, we had a lot of people come to our shows who were active duty military or, or, um, or veterans, but they were always trying to in indie rock and in art and art rock, trying to re or to establish themselves outside of the context of, of a military identity. You know, they were always quick to say like, yeah, I'm in the air force, but I'm really into iron and wine. As, you know, kind of, you could hear them in the barracks trying to differentiate themselves from their other, their fellow soldiers. Sure. And, you know, and they're just like, yeah, everybody listens to rapper country, but I'm really into this, this niche music. So I was the niche, not the, not the mainstream. But so my daughter didn't grow up in a world where there were veterans all around her. And the ones that were all around her were, um, veterans of a different era, you know, not the, this contemporary, um, culture of 20 years of American war. Right. And I'm sure, I mean, Austin even is probably a, um, probably an ivory tower relative to the rest of Texas. Yeah. If you, yeah, if you lived is. in Waco, yep. you'd probably have a lot more, uh, you know, sort of elbow to elbow contact with, with, um, the warrior culture. Mm -hmm. So when she hears nine 11, it's always, it's, you know, it floats past adults whispering about it. It's parsed. Um, you know, obviously she's never heard anyone, um, be snide about mm. it or anything other than reverent, mm -hmm. but the reverence isn't then connected to, I guess it's not connected to a sense of reverence around American patriotism. That's, that's like omnipresent in our lives. I think there are probably a lot of people for whom nine 11, um, like it fits into their cosmology because they talk about America and terrorism and war and patriotism all 
in a in a tone of voice. It's you know it's a it's part of their culture, part of their religion. And nine eleven is like a foundational moment. It's the it's the day that will live in infamy. And for for us, like nine eleven is a precipitating event, but it's not a thing that we carry in our hearts. Mm-hmm. It doesn't de- kind of define our outlook. In a way, it is a thing that has forced us to spend the last 20 years defining ourselves according to, you know, along um, lines established in rule books that we didn't, we would never have signed off on, Mm -hmm. right? Like, like in, I was reading some essay I wrote in mid-September of 2001, where I, you know, the premise of the essay at the time felt very radical. Now, you know, it fits into a, a family of thinking, but I was, I wrote the bravest thing for us to do is not go to war. Like it's essential that we not do the thing that it sounds like we're going to do because mm-hmm. going to war will not produce any of the results we, we think it's going to. It will it's just going to pour gasoline. It's going to. It's basically giving aid and comfort to the enemy because what they want us to do is fight them, and it's moronic to fight them this way. Like, have we have we learned nothing from right. the from the several decades of fighting asymmetrical war against insurgencies that you cannot win? It is not possible to bomb them back to the Stone Age. You can't win. So why would we? think we could. And, you know, and in the essay, I'm like, well, because our, our president is a dummy and represents a a dumb way of thinking. And then I got to that place in every essay, three quarters of the way through where I started to chase my own tail around some idea. And then I had four or five paragraphs where I was just over here talking about some guy in 1820 that had, had a boat and then he got a second boat (laughs) And then I, aban- I then abandoned the essay. As, uh-huh. as, oh, it was. As I was assuming that this was like a like a published essay somewhere. No, were- I mean I intended it to be, but um, but I have a whole file, a whole a whole file folder of of essays where I get all, I start off like, oh man, here I I'm coming out of the gate, and I write the first third of just this really great scorching essay, and then in the middle I get, um, you know I, I'm. I kind of take a step back and collect myself and I'm writing for a while in this, you know, and like kind of an, on the other hand or, or acknowledging the, the counter argument. Mm. And then I, and then I come unraveled in the, in the last third, rather than, rather than tighten it back up, I go into some like long meditation on (sighs) war and mankind. And then it, then I'm like, I can't finish this essay anymore. <laughs> now, I, now I'm going to go make some macaroni and cheese and, and uh-huh. take a bath. Uh-huh. But so she sat down and said, tell me about 9-11. And I said, well, okay. In 1917, <laughs> and she sat back in her chair and went, okay. 1917 and I started to you know I started in 1917 and a few a few times I had to go back to 800 AD but walked her through and a lot of the you know there were a couple of adults kind of sitting in the room when she came over they were reading magazines or whatever and I could tell that they were listening along mm-hmm And in a way, like she stayed more focused than the adults did. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, I was giving her a lot of, I mean, all context for the longest time. Hadn't talked about 9-11 at all. It was just context. But she was putting it together. And who knows, 10 and a half years old, who knows how, how, much she's stitching it together into a fabric of 
understanding. Cause I'm talking about a lot of stuff that, that, uh, that we'll have to go back and we'll have to talk about it again. You know, this sure. is not the first time that my daughter is going to hear about the Balfour, uh, declaration and, um, and who knows how many times she'll have to hear about it before she takes an interest in it, if ever. Yeah. But by the time I got to September 11th and started telling her the story, you know, there's no way to tell the story without, without the horror. And of discussing the actual crash and what happened. Well, yeah, just the, just, it's, uh, it's diabolical yeah, and it's horrific and also, um, astounding, you know, a, a, an astonishing example of asymmetrical warfare. Maybe the, maybe the greatest example in all of history, mm-hmm. how 30 people with almost no resources and no you know, no, uh, weapons beyond just like what effectively with stone age weapons, mm-hmm. um, accomplish this feat. And so I'm, I'm telling her the story and just watching her and, and thinking to myself, is this even now, uh, appropriate for her? Like, is she emotionally able to hear this it's like a horror movie Mm -hmm. is this going to give her nightmares is this you know in the way that it gave us all of us nightmares nightmares, yeah like are you safe an airplane is a thing she spends a lot of time on airplanes or did until last year right are airplanes not safe you know and i said there's a reason because i talked in you know in my in my background, I talked about hijacking and how hijacking became a like a, a political statement in the late 60s, early 70s, and how it was a way that, you know, that Palestinians could direct attention to their cause. Right. Where they had they had no resources of any kind, you know, and this was a way they could get international attention, and a way that they could try to wage war on, uh, like public relations war on Israel when they had not been able to wage actual war on Israel successfully. And so now here, you know, there's a reason that we take our shoes off at the freaking airport. You know, that standing in line, going through all those machines was not didn't have to be that way. You know, it's all she's ever known and trying to explain to her that we used to just walk out to the gate. You know, you walk through the thing, you walk through a a thing that goes beep. But in the 1970s, that seemed sufficient. You walk through beep. In the, before I was born, there wasn't even that. Yeah. And for her to just kind of go, huh? Oh, right. That's a thing, right? That's not a, that's TSA isn't from nature. (laughs) It's a, in fact, if you look at any airport, it's, the airports are absolutely not designed to have this feature. The airports themselves were designed in the sixties, usually to be big, beautiful temples of the future. And then we had to carve them up and make these antechambers and these, these bad lobbies and, and collapsible walls and all this stuff. And it just, you know, and then on the other side, it was like, well, what do we do now? It doesn't look pretty anymore. Might as well put in a food court. But so telling her about it, you know, and I'm getting emotional talking about 9-11 and it's not emotional like sobbing. It's emotional like recalling in trying to tell her the story recalling it in a way that I've obviously spent the last 20 years kind of not needing to think about. Right. You don't, there was a time when you, you put yourself in the trade center 
and imagined yourself there. You know, I was at, I went to the top of it, of the, the windows on the world on September 1st, 2001. No kidding. Yeah. I was living in New York that summer and was headed back to Seattle because the first long winters record was completed. It was going to come out in February of 2002. And I needed to put a band together to go on tour. The record was going to come out and we were going to, it was going to be the first time I took my band on a legit like record tour. The Western state hurricanes went down to, to South by Southwest once played 10 shows with death cab up and down the coast. But, and I was, and I'd been in Harvey danger, but I'd never had an album come out and I'd never, gone on tour. And so that was happening in February and I was in New York and I didn't have a band and I didn't have a practice space and I didn't have a guitar. So I had to come back to Seattle. And so, you know, the day before I flew home, I, I went around and said, I'm going to do some touristy things. And I went out to Coney Island and, uh, rode the, the roller coaster and I went to the top of the World Trade Center. And I, so, you know, when it happened, I, I, I was just there. Yeah. And I stood on the roof, you know, I went up to the roof and I, and I was with a friend and we sat and talked about, um, how you would blow up the World Trade Center. Really? You know, yeah. Cause they, they tried to blow it up in, in yeah, 93. Yeah, they did the bomb in the parking garage. And so you couldn't <clears> help, but. <throat> If you're standing on the top of the World Trade Center, you can't help if you're, especially if you're a pyromaniac, uh, you can't help but think like, how would you, you know, how would you blow this up? Like, imagine blowing this up. Like, that would be insane. Um, So it was like a, you know, it was a palpable experience. But so I'm telling her about it, and and after all this long talk. I was like, so let's watch some videos. And we sat together and watched videos and I explained what was happening. And, you know, it's just unfathomable. And watching her try to fathom it. And and astonishingly, she had never seen a video of it. Right. And didn't what, have which, a, like, which parts of it were you showing her? Well, I was like, you know, okay, here's the North Tower. Right. And it's already on fire because a, a plane hit it. And people thought that it might have been an accident. And she said, how could a plane accidentally hit right in the center of a building on a bright blue day? There's, I mean, there's nothing around it. How could it possibly have hit that accidentally? Mm-hmm. And I said, I know it sounds crazy, but at the time, it was the the alternative that it was on purpose it was unthinkable. Was, was unthinkable. Mm-hmm. So it was just like, I don't know. Maybe he was sightseeing and he got too close. Maybe he had a heart attack, you know, all this kind of, and I remember the speculation at the time in that moment, right? I don't know. I mean, it happened and nobody really, I mean, it was like astonishing, but like the president didn't stop what he was doing. And then I said, and then now here comes the second one. And I told her where they all had left from and, you know, how many people were on board and what the hijackers were doing as far as we can tell what they were doing in that moment. And then, you know, here you see the other one come around and then here it is when it hits it. And that's when everybody knew that this was a whole new world. Right. And it's, you know, and I didn't show her like anything to do with jumpers, that being a thing that's already pretty, um, censored. Yeah. It's not it's not hard not to show her. You have to search if you want to know about that. 
so it was all the it was all at a distance right there um but watching her grapple with it and she's a she's a a child and she doesn't have a ton of experience she hasn't seen any marvel movies mm. but she's seen the star wars movies mm-hmm. so she's seen epic disasters of the kind that people when they watch the towers fall all said wow it's just like when a imperial star destroyer crashes into the surface of a so she can see the world through that lens but it wasn't um but that th- this clearly wasn't that right. you know and I've I've checked in with her a few times since then. You know, it's only been a week. But like, hey, do you have any questions about 9-11? Anything you want to circle back to? And she's she does the like, nope, I'm good. So I don't know. Maybe maybe she'll come or I mean uh, invariably she's gonna have something to add or, or ask. Do you think she's just sort of processing it or internalizing it? Or uh, what do you think? I feel like I'm processing it. Yeah. Having just having tried to explain it to her and, and spending that hour with her going over it again. Um, and I talked a little bit to her about, the subsequent wars, although by that point, you know, that's kind of a, a, a pretty like low ebb denouement mm-hmm. to that story. Yeah. In, in, in the sense that she's not, she doesn't want to know about our prolonged misadventure in Afghanistan. That's not what she's asking. It's, but it's it's the rare occasion when she would come to me and say, hey, what do they mean when they say, and I would have like such a story to tell. You know, she'll come one day, I'm sure, and say, what was the Titanic? And I'll tell her the story of the Titanic. And I'll probably that'll probably be a thing where you're like, wow, I haven't thought about that in a long time. What a terrible, what a terrible crash. But so far, she doesn't seem to have anxiety about um, disaster, right? She's not she's not worried about um, the end times. Were you at her age? No, I've always I've always expected the end times and have been preparing for it. But it, but I was never anxious, you know. During the Cold War, like I was ready for the bomb at any time, as we all were. Yep. Uh, fully expected it, and to whatever degree that is, um, you know, that's a trauma on our generation. I didn't worry, in the sense that it seemed inevitable, and when it happened the ones that survived would have to figure it out and that would be hard but no no point in thinking about it until we get there mm-hmm. um it, you know besides like having some canned chili in the basement you, there's only so much you can do you can't have 50 years of canned chili but I mean, she's. It's not. It's not that she doesn't have anxieties about things. She does. But the the other day, she's always slept with her door open, her bedroom door. Yeah, I wish I wouldn't do that. Well, and so I, I, so I sat her down and I said, I want you to start closing your bedroom door at night. Yeah, good luck. And she said, Why? And her the thing is, her mother doesn't want her to. Why not? Her mother, well, her mother leaves her door open and she just wants, I don't know what, the free flow of air. The exact thing Is that you don't the real want. reasoning? I don't know what. I don't know what. Did they There's say a, that? 
there's a cat in this house and they want the cat to come and go and visit them in the night or <sighs> they just don't, you know, the door with the close the door and ah, I don't know what. I honestly don't know what. But I but I said, I want you to start closing the door. And she said, why? And so I said, well, let me explain. There it it's possible in the night that someone will have left the burner on the stove or there will be some problem in the kitchen. And she understands this because the because the stove gets left on in this house. You know, somebody will take the pot off the stove, dump it in the colander, and they will forget to turn off the burner. Because by, the burner, by they, do you mean you? Not me. No. They. Okay. Them. Not you. I, when like I take a thing off. specifically not you. Not me. When I take a thing off the burner, I with the other hand, I turn the burner off. Okay. But this burner doesn't get visibly hot. And the little light that says that it's on mm. stays on even after you turn it off because the light says it's hot. Mm-hmm. So the light is no indication of whether the burner itself is on or off. And so your mind learns to ignore it. But this is a pet peeve of my daughter. She comes by and she's like, the stove is on. And then they, whoever they are, go, Mm -hmm. oh, oops. And I'm always the one that's like, no, not oops. This, you need to turn the stove off. Right. Oops is not, because one of these days you're going to set up pan on it, a dry pan or a wet pan. And this is how fire start. So I say to my daughter, stoves get left on and she nods in acknowledgement and recognition. And I go, oftentimes a stove will sit there very hot and everybody will go to bed. And she nods and I say, and then something, something happens. The cat knocks over a container of scabetti or a pot that had water in it boils all the water out and then the pot gets really hot and it falls on the floor, whatever. Lightning strikes and a fire starts in the kitchen and she's going, okay. And I'm like, so here's what happens when you're asleep and the door to your room is open and there's a fire in the kitchen. Right. Your room fills up with smoke and before you even have a chance to wake up, you've breathed in enough smoke that it's made you very, very sick. Right. And then you wake up and your room is dark and full of smoke. The fire's in the hall. And she's like nodding, okay. And I said, now here's what happens if your door is closed. All of that happens out in, outside, out in the hall. It's not your problem. And when you wake up, you wake up to the sound of the fire alarm. And you have air to breathe and you have time to think. And then you open this window right here and you jump out and you don't worry about anybody else. You don't worry about your mommy. You don't worry about the cat. You don't worry about me. Get out the window, down onto the grass. And then from outside, you start yelling, go around and yell outside of everybody's window, go to the neighbors, yell, 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 yell. And I did all the 1970s stuff about touching the doorknob, oh, yeah. and about the, you know, towel on the floor and all this other stuff. Stop, drop, and roll, I might have even covered. Mm. All the stuff that they taught us. But I said, the difference between shutting your door at night and leaving it open at night is all about whether there's ever going to accidentally be a fire in the kitchen, which is not a 0% chance. Mm -hmm. And she nodded. And then every day since then, she's been absolutely methodical about shutting her door at night. She asks when the last person that leaves her room, she says, will you shut the door? And I said to her mom, I want her to start shutting her door at night. And her mom said, I don't want to know about it. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, whatever reason it is that you want her to start shutting her door, I don't want to know the reason because oh, I don't freak want her it. out. It'll yeah, I don't want her. it in my head. Whatever, the, right. whatever your thing is, whatever your trip is about now we're <laughs> shutting the doors, I don't want to know. Right. And I was like, well, it's important, I think, that you know. And she's like, I'm, I don't want to know. And I was like, all right. 
well, I'm going to talk to, I'm going to talk to our daughter and, and you can live your own life however you like. And she was like, fine, I will. I'm going to leave my door open so the cat can come and go. Okay, that's fine. Now, do you find, I don't know the layout of your house that well, um, but do you find that you're, like, you're having to be quiet or tiptoe around or, or do things more quietly because the door is open? You can't, no. you know, play music as loud as you want or you can't watch TV as loud as you want because the door is open. Is that the main reason that you want it closed? No, no, I like the door open too. Um just because it's uh like the these two sleep like logs. Mm. So I could be playing field hockey <laughs> uh in the hall and and the game could come bursting into their room and then, you know, go back out into the living room and they, it wouldn't wake either one of them. Amazing. You know, if you if you if you step on a floorboard in the hall, if if a thing on the other side of the house creaks, I wake up from a dead sleep mm-hmm. and I listen. These two, you can come into their room and pet their hair, talk to them. Wow. You know, okay, sweetie, you know, I love you. It was a big day today. You did good, you know, petting her hair, fast asleep. Amazing. I don't know what that would be like. What would I that have no be? idea. I have no idea. And so from the time at night, do they just, do they just lay down and go to sleep too at night? Go to sleep. They lay down and they go to sleep. Just, uh, it's time for bed. I'm tired. I'm going to lay down. You know what? It's earlier than usual. I'm just going to lay down and sleep. I'm going to go sleep. My daughter's like me. She tosses and turns, but her mother is one of those people that slips into a made bed head, you know, nose facing the ceiling, arms at her sides. Mm -hmm. And then in the morning can slip out of the made bed and the bed is still made. Mm. You know, she just is like a sleeps like a, a sarcophagus. Yeah. But now at least one of the people in this house has an understanding of fire safety. And as far as I can tell, she has no, it's not, added to any anxiety she just now maybe it's because the way you told her maybe you told her in such a way that made her feel like there was thought in that went into it and there was preparedness about it and you know what i mean like maybe she's comfortable with the precautions that you've put in place yeah um that yeah maybe i mean i think she does want there to be a chain of reasoning and at least in her relationship with me, there's n- I never say anything is true because I said so. Mm. Or, you know, I never say that's the rule and don't ask why. Because I'm the same way that she is. It's like, well, what's the... Okay, so here's the rule. I understand the rule. I even understand the the problem you're trying to solve with the rule. But is that the rule that you come to? If this is the problem, if this is your problem, and then it turns into this problem that you feel you need to solve, and this is the rule you came up with, and everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that that's the solution. Um, and to not, you know, to tell her like, well, that's the rule and you just have to do it. I mean, I'm sadly, crazily, Dan, this is the, this is something that's just happened in our relationship recently where I've had to say to her a couple of times, this is an instance where you can have these thoughts and feelings. They're absolutely legitimate. But if you say those things in school, you're going to cause a problem for yourself. Like there's going to be an uproar. If you say what you just said to me, to your teacher or to another kid at school, now you can say it to me. And you and I can talk about your thoughts. But there are some things that we as a society are not able to discuss. And so when you go to school, you have to be circumspect about what of your opinions you share. Mm -hmm. And that is sad 
but it's a it, but it's as true of life as any other thing. Um, and it's sad, but there are lots of things in life that are sad. Yeah. So what you, you know, what you end up with in life are people that you can trust with your thoughts. And that's not everyone. That's a great and way that, to say it. You know, and that and includes. Until you become a podcaster and then. Until you become a podcaster. And what can they do to you? Then they, they can't do anything. Yeah. They don't know where you live. Yeah. I do wish that she could live in a world where she could ask all those questions of the other people in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that the, but I wish I lived in that world too. 